0: Yeah. 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 yeah! Welcome to the Into the Wilderness Podcast. We have just got back from Germany where we were at the Ewa Outdoor Classic. Any any of you who follow us on social media probably saw a number of live videos and posts and stuff yeah, over the we're weekend.
1: we very very active, and uh, thank you to everybody that came and said hello. Yeah, we were it, was just, it was awesome to meet some people. Outs- it was outstanding to meet so many people from all over the the world. We had uh, Germans, Swedes. Uh, we Multiple have, Scandinavians, yeah, yeah from we different Scandinavian amazing, countries. Absolutely amazing to meet everybody. So thank you for everyone that uh, listens to the show from all over the world, because um, we know that you are all out there. Yeah, you We're are. Quite, well, quite a large and building contingent. From the United You're States. You're struggling with so i struggling today. with words <laughs> Contingent from the United
0: States as well. So thank you to all our listeners from the States yeah. and Canada. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have now been downloaded in every single state in America. That's pretty cool. How cool is that? And it seems that we have a growing contingent in uh, Germany. Germany. Because yeah. we met some of them uh, mm-hmm. at IWA. Um, but of course, our, our UK listeners, thank you very much because you have been there from the very beginning. You have. Yeah. Uh, we have a winner from uh, the competition two weeks ago, <clears throat> which was to win a Surefire G2X Pro um, flashlight. So, uh, for the YouTube uh, watchers, I'm holding it up to the camera so that you can remind yourself what it looked like. Um, awesome torch, lifetime guarantee, and incredibly bright two illumination settings, and it's it's the compact version. We've given a bigger one away before, but this one's uh, one that can actually fit in your pockets. So, the winner is
1: Rich Hudson. Now, Rich was actually uh, an email entry uh, because we said that we don't like to exclude people and it works we we
0: we normally because uh, it was originally a facebook and yep. an instagram post but yep. as always if you don't do the social media thing <laughs> but you're a listener we want to share the love as well yeah we do so, so we'll, you can email well us. done rich uh, you've got a month yeah, um, just ping us an email just like you did before, yep. and uh, we will send that over to you. And of course, we've got a new competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, one done, and a new one starting, which is to win a set of Caldwell Emax ear defenders. I think this is about the third set, we've maybe even fourth. fourth. Yeah, um, and these ones you can actually uh, you can actually plug uh, your headphones into as well. So yeah, they are electronic ear defenders. Ear defenders are something everybody should use while shooting. And most definitely on the range, these are brilliant because you can actually hear what's going on with everyone. Um, so if you want to win these, it's very simple, I think, because Daryl's going to tell you how to enter. Uh, we're just going to keep it simple. The way we've done it over
1: the last few weeks, uh, it's just going to be a case of uh, it'll be on Facebook. Tag a friend below. It'll be on Instagram. Just leave us a comment. And as we said before, we don't like to exclude people. So if you want entered into this competition, then all you need to do is email podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. It's in the description. And just have the title of competition entry for the Coldwell Ear Defenders, ear defenders yeah. or something along the line, just so that we can filter it, makes it easier for us. Luckily, we have an extraordinarily smart bunch of listeners and they actually do listen to every single one of our
0: instructions, which they have. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone has correctly.
1: Uh, uh, entered correctly.
0: So. so there's three easy ways to enter on Facebook, on Instagram, or shoot us an email to win uh, the Coldwell Ear Defenders. And uh, we'll probably put up, uh, well, you'll, you'll see a post with more info on them on both those platforms. Yeah, a picture I, of them. I don't own a pair myself uh, because we keep giving them away. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, on to, well, actually, no, before we get on to uh, this week's show, we've got a couple of um, announcements. So the first one is that Northern Shooting Show, you will be able to see us at the Northern Shooting Show, which is at the start of May, uh, and they've just announced that Uh, the information on their um, deer focus area so they've got this area just outside one of the main halls where basically the focus is going to be on deer and all things deer related Um, to give you a a few examples there's going to be a live skin and butcher by Kayat Bryn who is a um, someone who was on the podcast last year sometime Uh, basically every organization that supports hunting Uh, in the uk is going to be there in the the deer um, in the deer focus area including the sponsor of this podcast the scottish association for country sports so if you want to go and uh, have a conversation with them they're going to be there Uh, there's going to be a live demonstration on deer glands and what you need to look for which is everybody really should know that if you're Um, stalking deer so that's something not to miss and as well as all that there is a free competition to enter which is the i believe the very first uk red stag calling competition um and it is being uh run and supported by our friend joe from uh best Deer Deer call call. Uh, the competition is going to run on saturday afternoon and the first prize for that is worth 1600 pounds 1600 pounds 1600 pounds and it's free to enter yeah. so it'd be stupid not to <laughs> just go and give your best roar down the tube yeah so i would or get practicing. your hands or something
1: like that and yeah. uh, get practicing your roar get practicing because that is something you
0: want to be entering yeah. that's
1: going to be good fun i uh i believe uh someone's going to be the judge one of us is going to be the judge yeah maybe? i think we're going to be involved mm. involved
0: in the judging process and i think brent's going to be there as well okay well there you have it so perfect um Something off the back of the podcast that you're just about to, to listen to, which is with uh, Ivan Carter. We had Ivan Carter on maybe six months ago. It was a fantastic podcast. A load of people listened to it, and we continually it, get feedback. W- it on is it. one of uh, our
1: most downloaded podcasts is with Ivan, and for very good reason. It's also the podcast that whenever an argument comes up about on Africa, um, trophy hunting, ivory trade, so on, it's the one that we always share with people and tell them to listen to it to give them a greater understanding. And that's one thing that actually um, came out of the show of EWA was someone came up to us and said, "Thank you very much for doing the show because you've actually armed me with things." yeah and arguments to say, and arguments mm. to say, which is
0: one of the main reasons why we actually started this show yeah, that absolutely is, so it was so great to hear from somebody who just came like just completely came out with that and was like, we actually said to them at the time that is exactly why we started the show to educate and provide really good reasons um to support what we do um so you're going to hear from Ivan, and he's going to talk about some of the initiatives that he started, um the Ivan Carter Wildlife Conservation Alliance. Um, if you google um ivan carter w c a or ivan carter w c c a dot org you will go straight to his website and you will see the initi- initiatives that he 's supporting it's uh it 's the raindrops
1: dot org but that 's also linked to his site the barn just uh, said there and they go back to each other so they 're all linked and you can you can see that Um, And that's what Ivan talks about later on, uh, about the raindrops initiative. He starts talking about at the very start of the the show. And it will give you a greater understanding of what it is and how you can help. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we'll also go on to how you can help in a second through our website. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So you will hear what he says and you can go and visit the websites that he talks about. Mm -hmm. And you can go and give to the causes once you understand why you should be. And I hope that by the time you've listened to this podcast, you should be able to it should give you a reason if you didn't need one before to go and support these Uh, no matter where you are on the globe no where you are on the globe and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today actually has very little to do with hunting yeah there are species which are not quarry species but as hunters we've always said this that we should be supporting these initiatives even if we don't ha- necessarily have a direct incentive to do it you know through hunting um but what we're also doing is if you would like and we, we would love you to do this because then we can say that our listeners and our supporters are helping fund us is if you visit our website thepacebrothers.com click the shop you will find uh, one of the items in there it's the first item it's got a picture of a chimpanzee yep. and if you if you click that you can put money into these organizations and we are taking absolutely nothing from it it's just so that we can collect it all in one place and actually send it to the um, range and we'll and pay any uh,
1: fees or anything like that that occurs we were going to do uh, a GoFundMe. Uh, instead so we could keep count of all of our listeners um, money uh, but when we figured out they took five percent of uh, all of your earnings we
0: we decided against that we, we didn't want we, to do yeah. that <coughs> all of your money should be going in the right place yeah. and Ivan actually talks about that he explains where every penny of your money is going to go um so yeah if you want to go onto the website click that and you can you can see how to donate we'll collect all this money we're going to send it straight there uh, to, to give you an idea of what we are we want to achieve
1: uh out of this show is we want to pay for a chimpanzee for one year mm-hmm. which uh, look do, you the, do you have the total there? 660 pounds 660 pounds so that's uh, what we would like to raise yeah. from our listeners so we from uh t-shirts and also from uh money that we've made throughout
0: the year from our mugs and stuff like that uh, we've already paid for a month yes we have so we have we have already donated a full month uh, into the pot and once we collect everyone else's money that's where it's all going six hundred and sixty pounds it's not that much we've got a lot more listeners than that and it doesn't take much and you will hear this from ivan very very shortly but it's very easy for a lot of people to put in a small amount of Mm -hmm. money he he talks about uh, luxury coffee. I mean, uh, it could uh, be a pint.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, more, probably more
0: relevant to yeah. to this country, a pint. So, yeah, I mean, what's a pint, pint now? 380? 380? Yeah, 4 pounds? Like that, yeah. Have one less pint this week and go and put that pint money into this and then we can actually make a difference with it because the pint's... Not Probably not going to make any difference, today, whether you have <laughs> you'll, it or not. You'll, you'll feed the urinal, and that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll feed the <laughs> urinal. Quote yeah. of the day.
1: Yeah, feed the urinal. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's our aim, £660. And we would love to, in a few weeks' time, is to turn around to Ivan and say, we've managed to feed a chimpanzee for the year. That's our aim. So if you visit the website, then all you need to do is head to the shop tab. And then from there, you'll see a picture of a chimpanzee click on that and then you can add increments of three pounds that you want to donate and then when you go to the checkout menu all you have to do is for the postage there'll be a drop down box and it'll be the first one which is fine uh, the island Islands. So island it's island. the country yep. when
0: you select the country just select the very first one in the drop down menu island islands and that will remove any of the the postage yeah but if you are not
1: sure it's in the description and if you mess up Don't worry, you'll just end up paying the postage and that'll just be more money towards the (laughs) chimpanzees. Absolutely. (laughs)
0: Um, Don't forget that this podcast is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Um, If you're not a member of a hunting or countryside or conservation organisation, you should be because they are the very people who work in the background putting in um, the work on consultations and speaking up for us with legislative changes. Uh, So we we really should be a member. It's uh, a great organisation to support, and the Scottish Association for Country Sports is a great place to start. Uh, They also have uh, a lot of great deals and discounts on new cars right now. Um, certainly Toyota and Renault are included amongst those. So give the office a call and they'll be able to give you some more details. I know there's some quite big discounts on, uh, on all Toyotas right now.
1: And they don't just service Scottish members. They have members all over the United Kingdom and
0: they do have members abroad. So it's for everybody. Yeah, it is for everybody. Uh, last thing just to mention before we crack into the podcast itself with Ivan is uh, that this came out just uh, a couple of days ago now. Uh, which was after we actually recorded the initial podcast with Ivan, is that there was a white rhino um, poached and killed in a zoo just outside Paris. Sorry, I am struggling right now because the puppy has decided to wrap himself around the cable of my headphones. Floki, you're not invited onto the podcast. (laughs) Anyway, what I was saying was that, yes, this is the first time it's ever happened in Europe as far as I know. Uh, and this four-year-old rhino was shot three times in the head and its horn was cut off with a chainsaw inside a zoo just outside Paris. You know, the game is changing. It's, it is. it's serious, and it, we actually talk about rhino poaching, as you can imagine, uh, with Ivan in this podcast, but that conversation happened before this incident in Paris. Um, so, we've got to do something, and we've got to do something new, and we, so we, we discussed what potentially we could do and the issue with rhino horn trade and ivory trade and get Ivan's opinion on it
1: yep I think that's it for now enjoy the show lots to think about and I hope at the end you'll decide that you might want to give a few quid to help some very very worthy causes at the end and like we said earlier our aim for all our listeners all our awesome listeners is to raise enough money to feed a chimpanzee for the entire year which I think we can achieve together
0: Ivan, welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It was fantastic to have you on uh, six months ago, and it's brilliant to have you on again so soon. We weren't expecting that, so thanks for joining us.
2: No, absolute pleasure, guys. Um, You know, it's always interesting to have a chat with you guys and and really get some of these real issues of conservation fleshed out and and a great opportunity thank you for the platform
0: no uh, absolute pleasure uh, we're gonna really we'll get in pretty quickly to uh the, the topics that we want to talk about today because if anybody wants to listen about your background and probably a, a, a slightly wider spread of topics they need to go back and listen to the last podcast we did with you but just tell me what you've been up to uh with some of your shows and some of the things that you've been doing uh, you know in the last uh six months i think you're on season two of carter's war now
2: Yes, absolutely. We're just airing. In fact, funnily enough, I was just in the studio yesterday, um, voicing over a, an episode we're doing about giraffes. But um, yeah, you know, this last season was very, very interesting, Byron. We um, we we ended up going all over Africa. We we spent a bit of time in eastern Congo, which was pretty wild and crazy, and and found out some really, actually, pretty disturbing facts about the human element there. The the trade in live baby chimpanzees, the the volume of bushmeat that's coming out of that area. Um, We spent a bunch of time in three different countries um, with Julian Fennessy, who's the leading giraffe expert in Africa. And um, yeah, just just some really eye-opening stuff on issues that I had no idea were really going on. And it was frightening to me that, you know, even moving in the conservation circles that I move in, they were still new issues, which means that the general public certainly wouldn't have had an idea of some of these things you know
0: Mm. let's talk about the chimps now you've um we we've publicized it a bit across our social media platforms but it's it's a a really interesting but very very sad story so just talk us through that whole experience for you and what we as the general public need to know about that and what we as hunters need to do about it and what we can do
2: about it you know i think one of the the most important things, Byron, just to address the last part of your question first, is I think most important now than ever before is we as hunters need to stand on the front line of conservation issues. Not necessarily as hunters, but as conservationists. You know, hunters in today's world get a very, very bad rap. And I think that it's very important for every one of us to show that we are conservationists first. Not to say that, but to show it. And we can do that many, many ways. We can do it with our wallets. We can do it with our, our support of various initiatives. We can do it with with different programs that we can get engaged with. But I think, Byron, it's it's never been more important for us as a group to be seen to be fully engaged with initiatives that are off people's radar, that that are important issues. And that leads me right into, you know, the chimpanzee issue. It's something I had no idea was actually going on. Um, I went in to have a look at, a, at, a, at a, 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 a rehabilitation center in Eastern Congo, purely to see what was really happening there. And what I found was really shocking. I mean, you've got these very, very small staff of incredibly dedicated people, and there's, there's, you know, closer to 100 chimps than 50. I mean, it, there's over 70 chimps at that place, and it's just one of several, several like it. And... and what that led to, Byron, was we took a team in there, a filming team, and we, we started to really dive into what was really going on. And what I found was that several hundred baby chimpanzees every year just in Congo are sent to, to, to Asia and to the Middle East as exotic pets. And, you know, you go online and there's offerings of, you know, baby chimpanzees for sale and stuff like that. And, you know, chimps are only only 2 or 3% different DNA to, to you, you and I. They've got a lot of emotional ties to their family, their incredible parents, which means that in order for a baby chimp to end up on the market, its mother at least, and in a lot of cases, its whole family would have had to be killed. They end up as bushmeat in a bushmeat market somewhere, and these babies um, you know, are literally put into a box or a, or a crate or a cage of some sort, tied behind a hut, and then traded under the radar because it is illegal and so you know you've got this incredible trade that's going on underground and and we ended up going into kinshasa we found a guy that literally was trading chimps and um yeah for 120 dollars we could have got ourselves a baby chimpanzee right then and there and um you know it just it's heartbreaking when you see these little guys they they come in emotionally broken um physically in very very bad shape and, you know, the people at Luero, they, they really are unsung heroes. People don't even know this epidemic is going on. And then, then you've got these heroes on the front line. Um, but I think probably one of the most, the most moving things that we discovered was that um, Luero is supported by a Spanish NGO called Coopera. Um, and when they very first got involved, um, the local communities at Luero were very unhappy because they said, how can you support wildlife? when the people here are in such bad shape. So they started um, really, really putting a lot of community programs together, a lot of community education, but most importantly, rehabilitation for humans as well. And so you you think to yourself, well, what rehabilitation do the humans need? Well, a lot of the keepers, a lot of the people that work there full time are people that have been rehabilitated in that region. um, There's a lot of child soldiers that that are snatched. They kidnapped as young kids. Um, They hooked on drugs. They they treated very, very poorly. And they they forced to operate as child soldiers in one of the various rebel groups. Um, Those people are are literally snatched back and rehabilitated. And you can imagine the the mental and the social storm that goes on in those little people's heads. It's unbelievable. Um, And then there's also a big program to... um, to rescue women who have been um there, there's a, a word on the street in Congo is that if you rape a child less than eight years old um, it'll cure you of AIDS and so um you know you get these children that have been kidnapped and that's what they're used for and um yeah it, it's it's a it's a really moving story when you see these orphan chimpanzees um being rehabilitated by keepers who are themselves um you know orphans in in some way it's it's a it's a moving st- story that that the world doesn't know about the world does not realize this is happening Byron. and it's it's you know it's time that they did know you know
0: it's you know watching there's a the short uh, film that you put out which we'll put in the description to this podcast but it was it was it's, it's very moving to watch and look at that interaction and you can see the interaction from the people working there but also from the chimps of the neglect on both sides. And it's just fantastic to see that emotion sort of coming out. I mean, what what you're describing here is basically the uh, modern day slavery. Is what it sounds like to me, with regard to the to chimps being transported around the world as essentially you know playthings and pets.
1: I can't believe you're saying 120 dollars you could pick them up for in the Congo.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's the that's the bad part of it. I mean, you can walk into a market and for 120 bucks, um, they may not have. Have one right there, but they'll get you one quickly if you if you show that you, you're serious. And, you know, the problem is you've got so many people living below the bread line. they'll do anything for money. And, you know, one of the quotes that I always, always, always come up with is, you know, appreciating the beauty of wildlife is a concept that can only be understood if you have a full stomach. Because if your stomach's not full, you're not seeing the beauty of the wildlife, you're seeing the food value or the, the, the value, <clears throat> excuse me, the value of that, that animal to feed your family in some way, shape or form. So, so, you know, it really is a, it's a hectic scenario there, but it's also something where, you know, I think people don't realize that even the buyers of those baby chimps, um, you know, they, they're very cute. They're very cuddly. They're very human when they are small, but they're incredibly intelligent. They've also got an amazing, amazing volume of energy. And so, you know, within a short space of time, you know, you've got this very unruly pet that requires constant attention and management. It's incredibly intelligent. So, I mean, the the, the way that they, they figure out how to escape or, or how to play the, play the game, so to speak. And then, you know, as they get to sub-adult or even maturity, their strength means that they become a very, very dangerous animal. You know, and if it's an animal that's been poorly treated in its youth as an adult, yeah, they, they, they can be pretty full of hate and, and very calculating in how they're going to get you. And, um, you know, it just makes it just absolutely the the polar opposite of what a good pet should be. I mean, it's not it, – they're not intended to be pets. They And yet, you know, you're constantly looking on YouTube at, you know, these cute little videos of chimps in, in diapers and, you know, baby chimps and whatever. You're never seeing the adult version of that. And you look at that and you think, man, I wonder what happened to that that creature because I mean as intelligent as they are um, they don't deserve to be stuck in a box for the rest of their life you know. No,
0: I I think you talked about it and you've kind of touched on it here but certainly in the last podcast you were saying how important it is to interact with the local community and for them to have a stake in the wildlife for the wildlife to survive. I mean this sounds like a, a pretty good example of that.
2: No you're exactly right. There cannot be a sustainable conservation program without the community being fully involved. And so what they do at Luero is um, every employee there comes from the local community um, outside of the, the the kind of the, the rescue people. Um, and then also they, they get through a huge amount. They've got got over 100 monkeys there and, and just over 70 chimps. And so all of the food for those animals also comes from the local community anytime they need to do any buildings or you know any development that the the skills for that are come come brought out of the local community so that you know in that in that region it really is the only place that you're getting any form of employment any form of cash going into the community and so they see great value in the project itself as far as educating away from bushmeat that's a much bigger and much much deeper problem. And, um, there's a lot of people working on it in that part of congo um there's guys working on on teaching people how to grow trees so they don't have to do charcoaling in the forest um, There's people teach you know with guinea pig programs so that you know they they're teaching the people to raise guinea pigs for food instead of the bush meat and so there's a lot of awareness being generated, but it all comes down to the down to the same thing guys is that you know that awareness is great but you've got to have the financial resources for the teachers to be out there teaching it. And so, you know, I also say, you know, conservation is a lot more simple than what people make out conservation is, is merely identifying these heroes on the front line and then giving them the support they, they so justly deserve to to ultimately succeed on their mission. And what is that support? That's global support. And so it's difficult to find someone to write a hundred thousand dollar check, but it's not that difficult to get a hundred thousand people to each, each send a dollar. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we are just in the process of launching right now is something that I call the raindrop initiative. Um, it runs on the premise that I think we can all agree that that rain is the bringer of all life. I think we'll also agree that a tidal wave is one of the most, most changing weather phenomenons that you can get. Once a t- tidal wave has been through somewhere, everything has changed. And, so so what I'd like to do is, is to put a tidal wave of conservation across Africa, because we all know that a tidal wave is just made up of millions of raindrops. And so what the raindrop initiative does is it challenges people to put the value of a luxury cup of coffee onto the front line of conservation once a month. So you're giving up one luxury cup of coffee, four or five dollars once a month. But we're asking people to do that for a year, because that way from a budgeting perspective, we can go to someone like Luero, to the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, to an anti-poaching team in Mozambique. We can identify what specifically their life costs are, the the food shelter, the running costs of that particular organization. And then we can finance that, knowing that it's not just a lump sum that you send them and then hope to find another one when that runs out. We've got a, a really nice rolling wave um, of support and so that that's a that's a big focus of mine here in the coming weeks and months is to really get that going so that people, you know, think about it. I mean, how, how important is it for your kids to see a giraffe into the future? How important is it for, for you to know that, you, you know, the, the chimpanzees are, are still living wild and free? How important is it that, you know, baby rhinos are rescued and cared for and would you give a cup of coffee once a month, give, give up one cup of luxury coffee to ensure that survival. Now, if one person does that, it makes no difference whatsoever. But if we can get millions of people around the world to to engage in that, I think that we really really can do something significant, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we wholeheartedly support that. And what I I would say is if I I think about myself and giving, you know, there there are loads of charities in the world that, that do loads of different things. And I think the one thing that probably puts off some people who might be thinking twice about it is them not knowing that the money is going to go to the end cause that is going to make a difference. So maybe you can just elaborate just a little bit more on what you said so that people listening to this, who are thinking, well, that's great, but how do I know that my three pounds 50 for my cost of coffee that I'm now not going to spend is going to go to the right place because I'd love to support this, but I want to know that it's not going, you know, that it is going where it needs to go.
2: So what we're going to do, Byron, is, um, is we are going to have a, constant running total right at the bottom of the page that shows how much money on a monthly basis is, is coming in and then we also going to we're going to start off really small we've just identified four initiatives in the, in the beginning and only once those are fully funded will we expand and i hope we end up you know sending to 50 or 100 initiatives because i think that, that there's also a danger in spreading yourself too thin and so what we will do is each one of the initiatives that we support um we have a fairly a fairly detailed contract with them and one of which is for them to give us feedback based on a on a weekly update of what's actually happening on the front line there so that not only are you seeing how much money is coming in and you're also seeing that same amount of money going out and so you ask yourself well how does he take care of of the administration and and all of the the running costs of an entity like this well what i've done is i've identified individual donors that have donated enough money for the employees to run the run the business which means that your general donations all go to the front line and and your your running costs are taking care of the business so we promise that that 90 percent at the very minimum goes to the front line I'd like to get it up to ninety-five or ninety-eight percent, but it's just simply credit card fees and and bank charges and stuff like that. Are, are it, it's just one of the things we deal with every day. But you know, we we guarantee an absolute minimum of ninety cents on the dollar. will get to the initiatives, and so you know, when it comes down to whether it's a five or a ten dollar a month donation, we we will absolutely put all of those together and get them onto the front line. And- and make a huge difference to those people. So, you know, as we stand right now today, Byron, we um Yeah, we've got about four or five thousand dollars a month incoming and um that's growing on a daily basis. And um really, really simple to to take part in it. And what I what I say to people, come on, be part of the raindrop, let's make it rain for conservation. And and it we can bring life this way. And you know, I don't want people to think, oh, well, this podcast is just about Ivan Carter begging for money for initiatives. It's not about that at all um but byron as we've discussed in our last one this this next few years is probably the most important time that that we've ever had for conservation in Africa because the human element has reached such a size that there's a lot of species that are right on the knife edge of survival there's a lot of areas that are truly getting swamped by the by the human element and the, and the wildlife is purely purely seen as food and, and you know we've got to act quickly and that's one of the reasons that i've I've taken this direction, is the more that I've learned through filming seasons of Carter's War, I mean, let's look at giraffes for a minute. You may or may not have seen the the recent BBC documentary with Julian Fennessey. We're just about to release a giraffe giraffe episode. As I say, I just voiced it yesterday. And um, how can the tallest animal in the world go extinct in seven different countries without anybody realizing it? You know, there, there's some populations of giraffe that are just a few hundred animals. That's rarer than a mountain gorilla. And yet nobody has really noticed that that's happening. And it sh- shows to me a great disconnect between the facts on the front line and the reality on the front line. And that, that's that's kind of where I'm getting engaged. That's where, for me, the rubber meets the road is, is getting those facts out, but in a way that people get emotionally connected and want to support those people. I, I have no interest in trying to make money out of giraffes. If people want to send me a sizable donation to giraffe conservation, I'll have them send it directly to Julian Fennessy, right on the front line. He's got his own 501 C three. He does incredible work. He's, he's, he's a guy that I support wholeheartedly. And so actually just recently we we did put nearly a hundred thousand dollars towards it from, from a, a donor community. And, um, Yeah, it didn't even pass through us. It goes straight to the front line. And so, you know, one of the things to get back to your initial question is how do people know their money is going to the front line? We have very few initiatives. We are going to increase that number as we we support those initiatives to the degree that we completely, you know, turn their world upside down. We want them to be fully funded where those heroes of conservation can do conservation. They don't have to worry and battle with fundraising. They can do conservation, and once we've got one fully funded, we'll move to the next. Rather than taking, you know, a bunch of money and spreading it thinly over too many issues and not really having a profound effect on any, you know, we want to leave a, a trail of incredibly successful initiatives behind us that are well supported, well funded, that the general public understands the issues and and, and is is getting engaged in a way that they know that that's a giraffe project that they. Make making succeed. That's an anti-poaching team that they are supporting. That's a rhino orphanage that they know the names of the last few babies that came in, and they know that their money has gone to supporting those babies, you know.
0: Yeah, the people are actually taking a genuine interest in themselves. I mean, just before we leave the, you know, the donations and the money side behind to look at some of the, the other issues outside of the chimps that you talked about, just give people an idea of how little money is needed to really make a difference, I think. Uh, I was just going to say uh, that. You talk that, about the how many dollars yeah. to feed a, a you know feed one chimp for a week. I, I think, think that, you've got I a think few examples
1: important like because I think it is important. it's people can relate to it better if they can think of it in small
2: numbers of how little it is to do one thing. Yes. You know, so so when you look at it, uh, for a month of food for a chimpanzee costs cost fifty dollars. Um, so you know, we we're just looking at a couple of dollars a day, and, and so if we get thirty people to put in literally a couple of bucks a day, not even $2 a day, you know, $1.75 a day. My math is really bad, so don't laugh at me. Um, but if we get 30, 32 people to put that together, honestly, it makes a huge difference. And that's why I bring it back to a luxury cup of coffee once a month. If you can put a luxury cup of coffee into conservation once a month, but you'll agree to do that for a year, you can make a profound difference to the way we do it do conservation. When when your luxury cup of coffee is put together with a million others, we can send a t- tidal wave of conservation across Africa, one drop at a time.
0: Mm. Um, Ivan, uh, can you just explain to me, just so I can get this picture in people's head, of some of the the rescues of, of these baby chimps? And just, I mean, explain it as graphically as you can visualize it so that people can really grasp uh, the dire state that these uh, these young chimps are in when they're actually saved.
2: You know, it, it really opened my eyes that the first time I, I was part of that. It was something that they had been waiting for about two months to actually go in. And um, I asked them, why is the delay? You know, what, what's the politics behind the delay? Is it permitting? Is it? And they said, it's just money. Congo is a huge country. And so the ICCN, which is the equivalent of na- national parks in Congo, um, they they had identified where these chimps were. And it was just money. We I, I jumped on the email. I got a bunch of, of really good folks to step up, and literally for the for the charter cost, which was six thousand dollars, the next day we were ready, and off we went. And we rescued these chimps, and they're chimps that had been living in a steel cage with a padlock on it, being fed through the bars. Um, they they had had no f- physical touch with a human, no physical touch with it, with another chimp, and you know just like just like human babies. I mean, they were literally just sitting there. And, um, yeah, it was pretty pathetic to see these little guys. One of them was clutching a, a a filthy rag. That was his only comfort. He wouldn't let that go. He wouldn't come out of the cage. He wouldn't, we ended up having to, to literally drug him, um, to get him out the cage and to get him into the aircraft. And, you know, you look at those, you know, the, the pathetic nature of these, these little guys. And, you know, another one that was just recently rescued was being kept in a village, fed very, very little, the hair had all fallen out of it. It was very badly malnutrition. It had a, a gold necklace on. Obviously it was, you know, just for decoration and you know big scars around its waist where it had been tied up at night. And um you know there was some video put online of this little guy just getting laughed at as it kind of begged for food and, and whatever. And you know, you look at something like that, it's Congo's a huge country. And sometimes it takes a flight, sometimes it's a long journey. To get to these things in the first place, to finance their rescue, Um, there's vets on site there that all command a salary, and so really, it's Byron. It's it's something where if you see it, we actually put a put a few video clips up on um, on an Indiegogo um, generosity campaign to to raise some money for it, and and it's it's amazing the reactions to those videos. You know, it's it's something that I think you mentioned you'll highlight in the in the podcast, but it's. um, yeah, you, you had a look at some of those those videos. I mean, they're they unbelievable. And yet, to be honest, every single listener here has got the ability to help make that stop with, you know, a couple of dollars each a month. Um, you know, and, and that's what I'm really trying to motivate. Motivate people to, you know, put a couple of bucks a month into these things. And if we all stand together on it in the same way that a tidal wave is made up of millions of raindrops, you know, conservation is made up of millions of caring people, you know.
0: Mm. And... <sighs> obviously what we a lot of what we've been talking about here is is the is rescue of an act that has already happened but in the long term ideally we want to be in a situation where there is no reserves needed uh, sorry no sanctuaries needed for yes. these orphaned uh, children yes. so what is i mean that is a very long term game it's a very complicated one and I, I imagine that there's a huge amount of politics involved in that that is very difficult to control but I mean, what do you visualise as the the long-term plan, so that we don't need to be talk having the conversation
2: that we're having? Let me start start with them um, with trying to explain what it looks like walking through a bushmeat market. I mean, you can walk through literally piles and piles of of wildlife that's been dried or smoked. Um, it's everything from large pythons to dikers to forest hogs to every every manner of primate, um, birds, terrapins crocodiles. I mean, it's all just lying there in, in smelly smoked heaps. And you look at it and some of those bigger markets, you know, like in Kinshasa, I mean, they turn over tons and tons and tons of that every single day. And so, you know, I think that the the helping of the um, the, the, the helping of these rehabilitation centers is absolutely the aid. But we've got to get to the heart of the cause of the of of that whole industry, and I think the heart of that is, is is a couple of things. It's it's awareness. It's very relaxed laws to do with it. But I think that it's also the fact that there's so many people in Africa, and that's a way that they feed their feed their families and fill their bellies. And you know, as bad as this may sound, one of the key issues that that's saved millions of animals across Western Africa is um is the Ebola outbreak. Break. You know, it's it's fairly well documented that Ebola probably came from some form of bushmeat. Some folks will tell you bats. Others will tell you primates. Nevertheless, the governments in the countries that had Ebola um, have completely outlawed and very, very aggressively p- policed the closing down of, of the bushmeat markets and the bushmeat trade in those countries, which is fantastic from a wildlife perspective. Um, and there's quite a bit of study going on there which you know it proves the fact that they've done that proves that it's possible to shut it down and I realize that it can't be shut down down totally it's um yeah it's ended up just going a little further underground but certainly at a fraction of the volume as as it would have been when it was fully open and so um, yeah byron I think that long term it's a matter of first of all supporting the the, the rehabilitation centers and then rolling your sleeves up and saying, okay, what, what research is coming out of out of the, the bushmeat industry and identifying with those researchers and really getting around a table and, and trying to look for a solution for the cause. We can't just take the headache pills. We've got to identify the source of the headache, you know.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, Just shifting from that to you mentioned giraffe earlier, and we, we actually saw an article on one of the BBC's online things maybe six months ago. Uh, about the decline yeah. in, in giraffe populations across Africa, just explain what you understand and what we understand as the the root cause of this. Because a lot of people pointed their fingers, saying they're hunting too many. That's that was the first reaction we saw online. Oh, well, we
1: did uh, we did a podcast with a, a high school in this country, and they actually brought up the giraffe decline, and they thought it was due to hunting. Yeah, illegal hunting. Yeah,
2: I should. yeah, and I think that you know that's such a commonly That's you know at the very beginning of this podcast. That's what I said is you know hunters get such a bad rap, and I think we've done a bad job of promoting what we really do. But really, if you look at the countries where giraffes are proactively hunted, um, those are also the countries with the most stable giraffe populations. And I'm not not saying that it's the only only solution, um, but the largest giraffe population on private land exists on the Booby Valley Conservancy, and that's a population that is 100% protected by hunter's dollars but most importantly it's a population that is so large that they they they, they will hunt those giraffe and then distribute the meat into the local community and, and that meat distribution is what has led to the the local community self policing so there's no bushmeat hunting there at all there is no illegal illegal you know wildlife killing in that area at all because the people are getting free meat from the hunting operations on Booby Valley Conservancy. So, you know, it really is counterintuitive. It really does take a take a, a little bit more explanation for people to get their heads around. But, um, you know, I, I think that the giraffe, the, the major cause for the decline in giraffe is it's a giant animal that yields a lot of meat, which means that across Africa, you know, I think that the major decline in giraffe everybody would agree comes from poaching and it's poaching for really one reason a giraffe is a, a giant animal it can yield literally pounds and pounds and pounds of meat a few hundred pounds of meat comes from a single giraffe and so from the perspective of a, a poacher who's looking for meat to put on a market that really is a prize that he's going to go after and so you know i think that a lot of folks have thought that it must be commercial hunting or or, or legal hunting that's eliminated the giraffe but that's not not the case at all. Right the way through Central Africa into West Africa, it's just the uncontrolled poaching of giraffe for meat that has led to their decline. And, you know, you look at some of these big rebel groups, it's known that they use giraffe to feed their troops because it's a, it's a large animal that, that you get a giraffe and you get yourself a lot of meat. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of other reasons. In Tanzania, they believe that the bone marrow, um, and the, and the brain matter will will cure AIDS. Um, in other countries, there's other kind of weird and crazy reasons for somebody to go and poach a giraffe. But by far and away, the most important cause for the decline in giraffe is, is simply the poaching of a giraffe for meat. And 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 that's kind of the 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 beginning and the end of that conversation. I mean, it's that simple. You know, uncontrolled poaching leads to a decline in species. And the most important species that's going to be taken off first are the ones that yield the most meat because that's what they're after. So if you're talking about Zambia, you're going to be talking about giraffes and hippopotamus and buffalo and things like that. If you're talking up into Central Africa, it's going to be you know exactly those same three species. And I think to me what's shocking is giraffe is such an iconic African animal. To have that slip away and become extinct in seven different African countries without anybody even knowing it, that's the shocking thing to me
0: it seems hard seems hard to uh get your head around the idea that they would have declined so rapidly and yet it's pre- almost gone unnoticed until now and it's happened over such a a short period of time but ivan what about um other species the one that always springs to my mind that no one really thinks or talks about because it's not as grand as an elephant or a rhino or a lion is, is pangolin I mean, the trade in, in pangolin scales around the world is, I was looking, doing some research the other day, is, is colossal. And I think we, we only know a, a very small amount of, of truly what's coming out of Africa.
2: You know, I think, Byron, that goes for almost any species. And, you know, I, it's funny, I just watched a little piece on pangolin just recently, you know, in the last couple of days. Pangolin have declined by a an alarming rate. I don't remember off the top of my head the percentage, but by, you know, I'm not sure if it's 50% or or 80%. I'm really not sure. But, but, you know, the use of their scales for Chinese medicine um, means that they are more valuable to the local population dead than alive because they can sell a dead one for its scales, but alive, there's no value to it. And so, you know, those little species that are nocturnal, that are hard to see, they slip quietly away it's no different you know somebody once said to me if an animal is invisible if it becomes the target of poaching nobody's even going to notice when it's gone i mean it, there's so many species like that byron we were we were just watching the other night a a a documentary called shark waters and it was a documentary about the finning of sharks and you know they said in that documentary 90% of the sharks in the ocean have gone because of the industry around finning and you know really when you look at that the reason it doesn't it's not a cause for alarm to your average citizen of the world is the fact that they're 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 invisible they're out in the underneath the ocean nobody sees them and so the pangolin is the same thing nobody sees them they're nocturnal they they snuffle around at night and eat termites and and keep a very low profile and I shudder to think what other species as well are slipping away without us even realizing it. Like you say, the charismatic animals, the the elephants and lions and cheetahs and rhinos and giraffes and and whatever, very, very easy to get attention on those. It's the smaller ones. And so I come back to what I often tell people is that, you know, conservation is not about conserving an individual species. Conservation, yes, while, while it may hinge around elephant conservation, and you put aside a patch of land, and it becomes very, very well protected to look after the elephants there. The reality is that by protecting that land for elephants, in turn, you are protecting a habitat for a whole host of other very much less, less, less visible species. You know. Hmm.
0: And uh, apart from the um, the chimpanzee sanctuary that we talked about at the start, you, you mentioned that there are a couple of other um causes that you're going to be supporting initially can you tell us a little bit um, more about those ivan
2: oh absolutely so we we've we're going to be supporting a, a rhino orphanage called care for wild um they're in a very secret location which um is part of their success because you know the more that you promote where these things are the poachers are also watching social media so um they, they are an incredible group of people. Um, they've got just under 50 rhinos right now. Um, they're rhinos that, that have been found, you know, next to their dead mothers. And um, you know, a lot of them have been found in a terrible state, ears chomped off by hyenas or, you know, literally bullet holes in them. And, and they are are truly heroes on, on the front line. Those, those folks at this particular orphanage at Care for Wild, and so that's that's a very strong focus of ours. Um, we then supporting two actually anti poaching um, units, one on the Booby Valley Conservancy, and one in the Zambezi Delta, um, both of which are are you know having profound success, but both of which are are, are very expensive to run, and so getting back to your earlier question how do people know that their money is getting to the front line well when we can start seeing feedback from those initiatives to say that they fully funded as efficient as they could ever be and that the poaching has dropped by by 95% or or 100% you know i'm not going to be showing you lots of photos of an anti poaching unit with a new uniform that's not what i want to do i want to show you a spreadsheet of how your dollars have helped the decline of poaching that's what i'm interested in i'm not interested in the fancy uniform or the helicopter or the 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 airplane with a logo on it what i'm interested in is the measurable decline in poaching as a result of our support that's what gets me going and so um yeah that that's what we intend to do with those guys and then um you know with the giraffe conservation folks um we we intend to make sure that all of their their research and their, their office expenses are taken care of. And, you know, folks will say, well, I'd rather support a, you know, a, a rhino orphanage than a giraffe research office. The only way that the world is going to find out about what's really happening on the front line of giraffe is if the folks that are doing the research have the means to do, do that research and don't have to spend half their time fundraising. And so, you know, just those few initiatives, they're very different a very diverse and that's on purpose because the moment we've got all of those ones completely funded and fully secure and where their next mouthful is coming from that's when we're going to add another one and another one and another one in the hopes that one day you know all across africa we've got hundreds and hundreds of initiatives that are that are supported by raindrop you know
0: if we just turn our attention back to sort of one of the the icon species of the the poaching issues that we see in Africa right now which is of course rhino. We've seen in the last couple of weeks the South African government talking about uh, opening up the internal trade of rhino horn. I know that you spent uh, a bit of time uh, in recent months on John Hume's farm. I've actually been there myself uh, maybe two years ago. What is the current state of play with regard to rhino ivan and are we seeing some steps towards doing something new, something that's really going to change the the horrendous situation that we're in right now where we're just losing Rhino every day?
2: You know, I think that opening local trade has no effect because the big dollars paid for Horn come from outside. Um, I think that there's one major hole in that, in that what they've said is that they are they are looking at opening local trade with a small caveat that you're allowed international trade of horn for for private use only that is a loophole that's big enough to drive a truck through i mean what does that even mean what is private use you know and so you know i am i'm pro-trade i I think that the trade in horn is something that can help um i'm pro-trade but based on on a few very important points. One, we mustn't think that trading in horn is gonna do anything to the price of of rhino horn. It's actually, if it does drop the price, it's going to drop it, and it's simply gonna become more accessible to more more people. So in fact, people would argue that the trade of horn will increase the market, and I don't disagree with that, possibly it will. We are not gonna eliminate a trade By stopping the supply. There's never been a commodity on the planet where limiting the supply has reduced the trade. All it's done is increase the value and made it more worthwhile for people to trade illegally. So right now, today, if you're a buyer of rhino horn, you've only got one place to buy from because the legal sector said, no, thanks. We're not going to sell you our horn. But the poachers are rubbing their hands in glee saying, "Okay, well, that's good because it means I can charge more for it. So, I think that another point that I would make is that if African governments, namely South Africa or Namibia, were to say, yes, we will allow international trade, but we're going to set up a distribution center in the middle of Beijing, where a bona fide distributor, the same as you would deal with diamonds or any other precious or, or controlled substances, you've got all of that money going to, all of the horn going to, to Beijing, and it's distributed by a bona fide distributor. On the front end, the horn gets all DNA fingerprinted. That way, on the back end, at any time, you could walk into a place where it's being resold, and with a small sample of what's being resold, you could tell instantly whether it was DNA. You could take the DNA, and you could identify whether it's arrived here legally or illegally. I think that if the South African government were to tax it, and make a lot of money out of the taxes of it, the private landowner now gets a return on his investment. And even though it doesn't affect the trade of horn, it doesn't reduce it or increase it, I don't believe, I don't think there's enough out there. I think what ends up happening is your landowner finally finds a way to get a return on his investment. That way, if an NGO were to donate 30 rhinos, for example, to a community, and they were to dehorn those rhinos and sell the horn on an annual basis, we would solve several socioeconomic problems all at once. One, you would have a community protecting rhinos because they would get a better return on that animal through the sale of horn through legal channels than any single other form of livestock. Two, they would potentially reduce their cattle herds, which have a devastating effect on the environment, and 30 rhinos, would have the same return as literally hundreds and hundreds of cattle and yet a fraction of the impact on the environment. And thirdly, your communities that have those rhinos are the very communities which are protecting or even even where the, the poachers are emanating from. So all of a sudden, the community is going to protect their own rhinos from the poachers from that community. It becomes a very different conversation. Than a national park protecting themselves from the community around them. And so if the trade were to be monitored through the the active DNA fingerprinting, if the trade were to result in community ownership of large groups of of rhino, and if concurrently the the illegal trade was truly squashed, then I think trade would be a very good thing. Without those measures in place, I'm anti-trade. Because I'm anti-trade if it becomes a chaotic bun fight with no real system, no real tracking, and no real benefit to the rhino. But as long as that trade is financing the future of the rhino, then I'm very pro. If it's purely financing a, 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 a corrupt, middle man, sector then i'm very anti it so it's a it's a complicated discussion probably more than we want to go into right yeah. here but that's basically a, a summary of what i think could work and bear in mind that's just my opinion from talking to a lot of people but um yeah it's a model that i really believe could work
0: well we'll just have to we're just going to have to wait and see what happens uh, how the discussions go uh it seems like you know there is movement, whereas they just simply weren't even going to discuss the trade of rhino horn. So there's certainly movement, but it, I suppose the question is, as you've just said, is it in the right direction and with the right uh, checks and balances to make sure that the ultimate benefit lies with the rhino and not uh, lining somebody's pockets so- solely for that. Um, what about uh, the kind and of? And like I say, it.
2: What's scary? So, so there's no value whatsoever to local trade in rhino horn. Because all of the money comes from outside. I mean, so what would be the point of selling a rhino horn to another South African? Yeah. Yeah. What's scary to me is, you know, the the fact that a small amount will be allowed for personal use only. What does that e- even mean?
1: Yeah, that they'll need to get that definition of personal use pretty uh, locked down. But like you said, I mean, that's
0: a loophole that's just going to be used straight away. Yeah.
2: What well, the- what that tells me is that's what the plan is.
0: Yeah, that's what it certainly sounds like. Um, Ivan, what is the? Uh, we're going to start uh, wrapping up fairly soon, but can you just give us a current, uh, or what your, the, to the best of your knowledge, knowledge, the current state of elephant across Africa, and maybe even if, if you have any news out of Central Africa, which we hear far less about.
2: Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I don't know what's going on here. That's cool. um, I think that. Across Africa, the, the countries that are better known, like the Botswanas, the South Africas, the Zimbabwes, those are countries which have a, a, a much more of an international spotlight on them. They've got a very visible elephant population. And what scares me is if those countries are seeing this incredible poaching epidemic, then truly what's happening in the forest countries where the elephants are very, very difficult to find. There's low populations anyway, and they they are pretty much under the radar. There's not much to- tourism there. Um, I think that those Central African countries are seeing an incredible decline. Um, I'm not sure of numbers. I don't think anybody really knows numbers. Um, there's a very interesting um, interesting um, in the last probably 18 months. Mike Chase did a the the great elephant the great elephant survey. Um, you can find that online, and he really shows what his, he did a systematic count of all the elephants across Africa and then published what he, what his findings were. And it was fairly scary, you know, what he actually saw versus what we thought was there. Um, anecdotally you hearing of people in, in areas where there used to be lots and lots and lots of elephant battling to even find one. Um, But as I say, that's more anecdotal. But the the Mike Chase report um, is something that that I'll make sure I send you the link to it. um, It's certainly an eye-opener on what's really happening with elephants across Africa. And again, bear in mind that counting a forest elephant is a very difficult thing. Um, You can't see them from the air. They're very secretive in the bush. Uh, um, And so it's a time-consuming and very difficult thing to do. But um, there's no doubt there's been dramatic 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 decline in, in those parts of the world
0: and i i assume that the issue here probably lies twofold one being ivory and one being uh, the meat trade
2: i think very little on the meat trade i think the ivory is the primary concern um purely because i think on the meat trade um you know it, it's difficult to carry an elephant out of the forest to a market where it's really easy to carry a monkey or a pig um you know and so i think that uh, that that may be simplifying it greatly, but very few elephants are are poached just for their meat. Um, I think ninety percent of the hunting groups that are that are out there doing anti poaching will tell you that um, they are finding carcasses with only the ivory removed, not the meat.
0: And uh, the solution to that is something we kind of touched on last time, but you know, we've just talked about it with regard to. Uh uh, rhinos and and the picture that a lot of people have in their heads of the ivory trade is these great stacks of ivory being burnt in various countries you know over the last 20 years that polarizes opinions about the you know the burning of ivory and maybe you can just very briefly touch on where you see that the end solution to that going because that almost is a even more difficult thing to tackle than than the the trade of rival, uh, rhino horn
2: You know, I I have a very, a very simplistic way of looking at that. And that is, I would like to see us. So I'm, I'm, I look at, let me try and think how to, how to explain this the best. We've been burning ivory to make a statement for a couple of decades now. Um, What I want to know is what difference has it truly made? are we seeing a giant decline in the poaching of elephant in Kenya because they burnt a bunch of ivory? That's all. I mean, it's that simple question. Um, It's no more difficult than answering that question. So if the answer is no, why are we doing it again? What what do we hope to gain this time that we didn't gain last time? And so the next thing is coming down to whether we pro or anti-trade, is if you you look at ivory, would it be better to burn $200 million worth of ivory or to put $200 million into anti-poaching Game Scouts that completely secure a national park? I'm not sure if there can be any further discussion. You know, once you answer those two questions, I think the answers come out on their own. Um, and so, you know, the, the other side of that is that there's some very well-respected and great, great conservationists that are very pro those burns. And, um, I can understand how emotionally one gets angry and you just want to see that ivory off the, off the market. It's that simple. But the reality is, is that the best use of that resource that it doesn't bring the elephants back. The elephants are already dead, and so is that our best use of resources? And in particular, that resource with regard to shutting down the trade—is that is that our best use? I, I'm not sure that it is. But that said, um, you know, there, there is—it's it, a difficult deal because we're making conservation decisions based on emotional reasons, not based on the fact that it's worked in the past. Let's do it again. Mm.
0: No, I think it's a, it's a very key point there and I, I certainly bring it up a lot in the articles that I write is that we as the general public we need to think about a lot of things, well everything in conservation with our head and strip the emotion out of it because the emotion actually doesn't have any part to play in whether something should or shouldn't be done and uh, a lot of the bad calls I think in our history have been made because they've been made with emotion rather than logic.
2: No, I agree 100%. And I think that, you know, one of the most important things with conservation issues is to say, okay, why do I believe that what I'm about to engage in is going to have a profound difference? And so I've been very, very, very careful about selecting who we support through these initiatives, selecting how we put the initiatives together so that I'm able to, on a stage, answer that question. When you say to me, Ivan, why have you chosen this initiative, I have a great reason why I've chosen that particular initiative. I've got a good idea of what I want the end game to be by me supporting them. And it's something that I really believe will make a difference. Now, now, I'm not saying you don't make a difference, whatever we do, but I'm talking about a profound difference that changes the future of the species, Um, you know, not just another difference, you know.
0: I hope everybody who's listening this to this uh, can feel the need to go and look into what we've been discussing over the last hour and go and support it. But Ivan, if you can, uh, I'll leave the, the final words to you. Just speaking to hunters, people who, who hunt around the world, who, who are the, the vast majority of people who listen to this podcast, although not everybody, just speaking to them, Why do they need to engage in this more? Why do we as the hunting community need to engage in just the kind of conversations we've been having and support the kind of things that you've been talking about more? Why is it so important? If you can just speak to them.
2: You know, I think that Byron talking to the the hunters around the world, nobody would argue that hunting opportunities are opening every day. We would all agree that hunting opportunities are closing every day, and the general perception of hunters is getting worse every day. It's not getting better. And I think that comes from one source. That is, we are not seen as conservationists. Hunters are not seen as people who care about conservation. We are seen as often the root of the problem, not the root of the solution. And what we need to do is to change our identity. And if we do that, we truly are going to be able to enjoy our pursuits, have a profound effect on conservation, and have our entire industry more accepted in society. And so, you know, when you see an anti-hunting, you know, initiative being mounted by, you know, whoever it might be, Discovery Channel, in, you know, 440 million homes in 17 different languages, that is purely because of of a lack of understanding of what hunter's dollars can do on the front line. Now, I think there's two conversations here, Byron. One is the hunter himself. The other is the money he spends. I do not in any time or any way or any shape or any form get into the discussion of what a hunter represents. We love our pursuit, and that's what we do. It's almost impossible for someone who doesn't to understand what we love about it. And so therefore, it's very, very difficult to, to to protect that or to defend it. But it's very easy to defend the flow of Hunter's dollars onto the front line of an initiative. And so what we have to do is to A, increase that flow, and B, get better at talking about that flow. And so, you know, almost to the degree that it's So I'll give you a good example. If you look look through all of the Carter's War episodes, you'll find that we hardly ever mention hunting. And it's a conversation I have a lot with people. And people will say, why aren't you mentioning hunting more? Well, if I I mention hunting out of the gate, most people won't even watch further if they're anti-hunting. But if I get them to fall in love with an initiative that I'm part of and only ask, afterwards they find that that initiative is 100% supported by hunters and it's it's successful because of hunters, then all of a sudden they might look beyond the hunting and and say, well, I love this lion initiative on BVC, on Booby Valley Conservancy enough to look beyond the fact that it's only there because of hunters. And so therefore, really when you look at it, I think what we've got to do is we've got to change the perception and we've got to become conservationists first and then hunters, but right now we are seen as hunters first, and some of us possibly do some conservation. We need to change that, Baron. We really do.
0: Well, I, I hope that uh, I hope that the hunters and everybody listening to this uh, will take stock of what you said and the stories that they have now heard. And yeah, go and check out your website and the initiatives that we're going to. We'll, we'll put the, the, we'll
1: links, put the links in the description, but just uh, just in case uh, someone doesn't look in the description, could you just let us know where we can find the information?
2: So, the best landing page for all of this is ivancarter.com. Um, at ivancarter.com, you'll find the links to everything that we do, everything that we, we represent. Um, there's links to the TV shows from there, there's links to to the, the foundation that we have from there. Um, there's links to the raindrop initiative from there. And so, yeah, IvanCarter.com is the spot to be. And then, um, you know, on Facebook, it's Ivan Carter slash, sorry, it's Facebook.com slash Ivan Carter's Africa. Um, so on Facebook, it's Facebook.com slash Ivan Carter's Africa. And I've got a very, very active Facebook presence where I talk about a lot of issues. And again, I don't talk a lot about hunting. I talk a lot about initiatives, hoping that people will fall in love with the initiative first and only find out afterwards that it's supported by hunting. That's my goal through all of this.
0: Ivan, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, uh, and you are welcome on any time you like and you want to talk about uh whatever it is that you've been up to in the last six months, because I have no fear that it will be something intriguing, interesting and something that everybody most definitely needs to know about, as indeed is the difference between our conversation six months ago and today. Um, so thank you for the, taking the time. And as I said just a few minutes ago, I urge everybody to go and uh, check out your website, have a look at the initiatives and see if you can stick your hand in your pocket to try and uh, help some of these campaigns to, for, for the wildlife around the world.
2: I appreciate it very much, gentlemen. Thank you so much. And I appreciate what you guys do in creating a platform that we can talk from.
0: yep Thank you, Ivan. It's, uh, it's been brilliant to have you on. That's it for another two weeks. Um, I'm sure that every single person listening to this will have felt something probably deep inside about what you've heard over the last, I don't actually know how long, how long it was, an hour and a it's half. It's about right? an hour um there's some pretty heart-wrenching stuff in there and probably a few things happening in the world that maybe you didn't realize um so as we said at the start and as, as ivan said in the in the podcast itself it's something that we need to we need to embrace and we need to support and we we told you how you you, you can support that at the start and uh, and throughout the podcast and just check the description in the yeah. podcast all the links all the there you can't go too wrong um, don't forget also that there is another competition, um, for this podcast, which is a set of Caldwell electronic ear defenders. And if you want to enter that, as we said at the start, it's going to be, you look for the picture on our Facebook page, Podcast into the wilderness on our Instagram, which is pace underscore brothers. And if you don't do either of the social medias, then, um, just email us at podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. And we will get you entered.
1: Yep. And if you haven't seen it already, there's a trailer out for our Film Festival film, In Search of Reverence. It is on YouTube, on the Into the Wilderness YouTube channel, and it's also on Facebook as well. Lots of you probably
0: have already seen it, hmm. to be fair. Well, it's been watched like 16,000 times already. Yeah, so. exactly. So, um, In two weeks' time, you'll be obviously hearing from us again. Uh, but unlike no- uh, normally, we can actually tell you what you're going to be yeah. hearing about. Uh, there's going to be a number of discussions from IWA, which we recorded this weekend just past, and a fairly lengthy discussion with uh, Phil Massaro, who is an American gun writer. Uh, we talk about a, a lot of different things, including hunting ethics and including uh, the sale of public land in America, which is something that we don't hear huge... Well, we've seen bits of it here, but I certainly didn't truly understand exactly what's going on, and he, he helps elaborate on that a bit
1: yeah we uh, many of you probably have heard about the the sale of public land and uh, how the industry is uh, fighting against
0: it so we learned a bit more more about it yes so you will hear from us in two weeks time yeah.